Flight Suit Friday listeners, what is going on? I'm Kenny. Uh, I'm here with Sam. Sam, where are we? Dude, Aviation Logistics Center in E-City, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, dude. This is awesome. Yeah. Have you ever been here before? Never. Never. Me neither. This is a mythical place that honestly, like aircraft would go and then I don't know what would happen and then, you know, they just get a new one. You spit out a new one. It's like really shiny new paint job. Yep. Yep. Uh, What do we walk around the fixed wing hangar so far today? Yep. Saw some C-130s, C-27s. Yeah. Uh, some Casas. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, it's awesome to be here with uh, Captain uh, Tad Hegon uh, <laughs> Wilson because uh, he was our EO slash EXO when we were in San Francisco together. And man, I feel out of place with the treatment that he's given us. Just they definitely us pulled a, out the red carpet. Yeah. Giving us a tour and everything. So, I mean... The whole purpose of being here is because we've never had a chance to, and and like everybody knows how important and awesome our maintainers and, and our engineers are, but a lot of people have no idea what ALC is. Like this place employs eighteen hundred people. I learned that today, which is insane to me. Uh, and then looking out the window right here is just torn down twenty sevens, one forty fours. You got C one thirties in here. It's really cool. So Captain Wilson said he's been listening to some of the podcasts, and he says some of the stuff that we say is like laughable it's almost wrong yep. um, and so yeah we definitely wanted to to get out here and let you guys hear it from you know the people that are actually here and living and, and breathing it and hear what they've got to say so awesome I'm excited yeah so we'll get started uh and it looks like we're going to talk to some fixed wing guests you ready let's do it let's do it dude all right folks welcome back to Flight Suit Friday, and I've got uh, two wonderful commanders here. Uh, I'll start with you, Commander Law. Can you just uh, introduce yourself uh, and tell us what you do here? Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Commander Morgan Law. Currently, the Long Range Surveillance uh, Platform Manager at ALC. Okay. Uh, fifth year here at ALC. My first four years, I spent as the C twenty seven Engineering Officer. Dang. So uh, is that yeah. a normal amount of time, or did you? Uh, I'm Just in my super senior year. Okay. Yep. Got um, it. We'll see what the OPM has for me in store this summer, whether I'm super, super senior or I get back out to the fleet. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. What are you hoping for? Because OPM's listening. Uh, yeah, I'm going to talk to him later today. So, <laughs> okay. uh, send me to Barbers or Kodiak. Hell Come yeah. on, Dan. Yeah. yeah, Dan, do it. That's funny. I'm talking to him uh, later this week as well. So oh, let's just cooperate trying to knock our stories out, uh, then. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah, you guys going for the same place. Also, we I got... Commander Ash Lovejoy, welcome, sir. No, well, thanks. Well, it uh, really is an honor to have y'all here. I really enjoyed the tour, you know, and the questions y'all were asking earlier today when you were walking around. Yeah. Yeah, Commander Ash Lovejoy, um, like Morgan, uh, both of us started off on the Falcon, and then uh, I went 144s, you know, Miami, Cape Cod, grad school, and now uh, ALC is mm-hmm. uh, MRS product line manager. Nice. Where were, were you guys stationed together, uh, Falcons? We sort of flip flop. So I started uh, Falcons, Cape Cod, Miami, 144s, uh, C20, grad school structures program, yeah. uh, C27s here. And I'm actually transitioning to C130Js starting tomorrow. Nice. Um, I mean, the elephant in the room, I see that neither of you brought your box lunches. So uh, <laughs> That's true. can we address that? Is that that uh, was a sad day when those went away. You know? <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore, does it? Unfortunately, no, unfortunately not. I think we, uh, I, I think the tendency was just too easy to take advantage of a little bit. I think at the end, you know, for the uh, six hour long patrols, people were taking two box lunches. And so then it just got, it got uh, too ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And they just said, we need to stop this. Yeah. You guys pushed it too far. We pushed it too far. <laughs> was there a favorite uh, box lunch item? The, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll be either. You I'll guys bet you were, you know, I bet you since we responded at the same time, we're, we're going to say the same thing, which is the uncrustable, which has about, uh, it's got about 3,000 calories packed into one little <laughs> peanut really butter and jelly conglomeration. Jelly. Yeah. The only way to eat it is heated in the 144 oven. So oh then it's God. like ooey and gooey, those calories just yeah. coming out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do miss box lunches. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's lunchtime. Yeah. You had um, a sore spot there, Sam. I know. Sorry. Well, we got some sort of replacement, I guess. Um, so like to crack beers on this podcast. Uh, I guess I'll introduce this one. Kenny and I went looking for beers last night, and the uh, unwritten laws on a Sunday prevented us from going and picking up from a package store. But we did go to the Wasserhund Brewery <laughs> in uh, Chesapeake, Virginia. Yep, Virginia Beach. We were there. In, yeah. I don't remember which one we were at. But anyways, it's a German... Chefeweizen, Hefeweizen, 5.9%. So, Kenny, I apologize, man. It's 0.1% below your threshold. Desperate times call for desperate measures, <laughs> you know? So, we'll crack cheers. those. Yeah. yeah, cheers. Sweet. Uh, uh, my favorite box lunch item, uh, I was on a cutter, and they put in a an unripe mango. And you're like... <laughs> Thanks for that. Like, no knife, just a, here's a green mango. I figured Thank you might you. be underway for a while, <laughs> yeah. so ripen up underway. Jeez. I guess I'll throw this out the window <laughs> at somebody. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, man. I know. I'm jealous of uh, the comfort, at least from, like, a, a helicopter perspective. I always look at the fixed-wing pilots, and you guys have, we give you grief about box lunches, but you have box lunches. You have mm-hmm. comfortable seats. I mean, these headsets probably feel relatively normal to you because that's what you guys like nicer headsets in your aircraft, but um, any stereotypes uh, firing back at us for uh, helotypes or do you? Yeah, uh, well, I'd, well, I'd say don't, uh, uh, lack of silverware use, mm. you, you know, maybe <laughs> you tend to use your sleeves as opposed to a napkin. Yeah. Uh, we always thought in Miami, we didn't let the helicopter pilots ride the elevator. You know, they had to walk up the stairs. <laughs> that was just an unwritten rule at Air Station okay. Miami. Okay. You know, because it was more of a gentleman's thing to ride the elevator. Oh, okay. okay. Would you like elbow them out of yeah. the elevator? Say, Get, Get out, out of here, here man. <laughs> Other than that, nothing. Oh, Other okay. than that, nothing else. I really like the fact that there's an elevator there in the first place, and then you would elbow us out of there. Man. Well, I, I guess we'll dive into not so much tomfoolery, but more of the engineering side of the house. So, um, Commander Law, you are C-130s, right? Yes, yep. I just moved over to the LRS product line. Yeah, I was so surprised walking down there. Um, one, I didn't realize that we strip those C-130s down basically to nothing. You guys can, you have the workforce that can essentially rebuild it or change everything out on the inside or how, how do things work in your in your world here? Yeah, so the PDM or Program Depot Maintenance is what it really stands for. Uh, starts off with a depaint uh-huh. and all fixed wing assets go offsite. They don't, uh, we don't have the facility to depaint or paint aircraft here. Okay. So the C-130s go out to Roswell, New Mexico is our current contract. They get flown back here and you start the disassembly phase. So like you said, uh, removing some of those larger flight controls, um, all the blankets, insulation blankets inside, so you can get to the the wires and any type of corrosion on the inside and outside the aircraft that you need to fix. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it goes through inspections uh, and then repairs, assembly, and at the very end, we fly them back out to Roswell to get painted. Nice okay. shiny paint job you mm-hmm. mentioned mm-hmm. Uh, before re-delivering to the units. That's cool. Well, what's um, How many you got here on, on base right now? So we have we usually do two and flow at a time. Okay. Uh, 
LRS is in a little bit of a changing because we're sundowning the C-130Hs. So we're not doing any more PDMs uh, for Hs. So we just have Js. Uh, currently, we have one in flow, and then we're doing a, a hard landing inspection for another C-130J. So we have two here, as well as a uh, Cal Fire C-130H for an inspection inspection as well. Yeah. So you, I, I guess I should probably back up, like the overall concept of the C-130 for the Coast Guard, I guess now includes some CAL FIRE planes as well? Or are we just building them out for them? So the, it's kind of a long story, but the National Defense Act of uh, 2014, uh -huh. um, California got seven of our newer legacy C-130Hs. Mm -hmm. The Coast Guard got 14 C-27Js from the Air Force, mm -hmm. and the Air Force got to divest of their C-27 program. So it was kind of a three-way uh, intergovernmental swap there. Okay. So part of that program is that the Coast Guard still is the tech authority airworthiness holder for those C-130Hs all of the way Cal through Fire. the modification. Okay. Yep, they're getting a fire retardant system built into them. Uh -huh. So until those tests fly, there are airworthiness, but we don't fly them operationally. Okay. Cal Fire does. I gotcha. Where do they out of? Where do you fly them back to? Sacramento. Okay. Yep. So they're at McClellan uh, Air Base, which is- uh, Right where we are. Right? Yeah, co-located with Air Station uh, Sacramento, but just different hangars. You can see each other from the ramp. That's cool. Have you flown in a C-130? Um, yes. I think I did once. Maybe. I was on a 378 and we pulled into Kodiak and I weaseled my way on to a 130 flight. And it was, it was super cool. Yeah. I, f I finally remember my, uh, my first experience on a fixed wing aircraft. I flew on, on the Falcon out of Cape Cod. They had oh, yeah. the cadet program where you go up for, a, I don't know, a couple of days during the week or weekend and get some fam flights. And in tri I, like you guys are both Academy grads. Yeah. You know, in traditional Academy fashion, you are, a hundred percent exhausted and I got onto the Falcon and we were going out to do some fisheries patrol and I sat there within 15 minutes I fell asleep and I slept for five straight hours and then we landed I think I got up to eat a box lunch <laughs> was my experience Did you do some strategic napping back Dude, there? I was straight up strategic napping like I think somebody tried to wake me up to see if I wanted to go sit in the cockpit and fly around and I regret it I regret not doing it yeah but any, I totally uh, got off track there cool uh, do, do you like uh, like the job here? I do. Yep. Every day uh, comes with its challenges. I feel like one of the best part about ALC is you're dealing with aviation. I mean, you guys are at ATC, so yeah. you're dealing with aircraft, aviation all day, every day. Um, but we get to see a lot of the challenges here. And I do feel like we're part of the solution on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, working with the fleet, working with headquarters, working with other pilots, aircrew, industry. Uh, both Ash and I are the direct comms to some of the uh, manufacturers, both for, you know, aircraft, engines, props. Uh, he and I are talking to them directly. So oh, really? that's been yeah. that's been pretty neat and unique in this job. Yeah. Do you guys go back and forth a lot? Like, or are your two product lines completely separate and you kind of... So yeah. he was my hey, boss up until that's about true. three weeks ago. Oh, okay. So uh, <laughs> I definitely worked with him a lot, but we are totally separate. But I mean, we're also peers doing somewhat similar but different jobs. So we do call each other a lot to bounce stuff off each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, having been here a while, I think we don't communicate as much as we should. Uh, you would think we would do that. We're all at the same unit. Uh, uh, but even the fixed wing side, like the LRS and MRS are, are relatively in the same spot. You know, we have different hangars, but it's not that hard to walk down the hall to go see Morgan. Uh, but each each product line just has their own slate of 
nuanced problems and and uh, their plate is full. And so I'd say we don't talk as much as we should, mm-hmm. especially fixed wing with uh, rotary wing. But we do have these, uh, they have these things here. It uh, sounds real good. They're called TETs, uh, yeah. tactical, tactical execution teams. And so we have an engineering TET. And so all the engineers from the, you know, the engineer from the uh, 65, 60, 144, C27, and C with 30 all are forced to get together uh, periodically oh, to, nice. you know, talk about the common stuff. And so that's really where we get the, uh, you know, cross product line involvement. Yeah. Do you guys actually use techniques or find solutions to problems from other divisions or? Yeah, I think solution wise, you get some solutions, but more it's a, a little bit airing of uh, similar grievances where oh, you're like, yeah. oh, you're also having that problem. Okay. This is more widespread than I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, admittedly, we shared a wall. Our offices were next to each other for three years. Uh, and it was often at the very end of the day where we would uh, pressure each other to leave the office where we're like, oh, what were you working on all day? <laughs> and it's, it's incredible because we both just had our own airframes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they both just had unique issues that we felt so heads down in the weeds on that we didn't just take time to breathe and say, how mm-hmm. would you handle this? So I do feel like when we take the time, it's usually helpful, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a busy day every day here. Yeah. You were mentioning just challenges. What what are some of like the biggest challenges that you, you guys see yourself facing right now? You know, the biggest thing I see for the 144 and C27 are just, we've, uh, reach just a level of complexity. I think we're, uh, you know, the medium range surveillance mm-hmm. product line uh, program in general in 2017 was just, was simple. It was, uh, the 144 was the only airframe. There were only two aircraft uh, in in the MRS product line at one time for depot. It was two 144. And then fast forward a couple years and now we got, uh, we've onboarded the C27, which is a uh, even though it's under the MRS umbrella, it is it is a it is a aircraft in itself. The uh, support structure, supply, contracting is different than the 144. Um, and, and so right now we're you know like the 144, we're kind of kind of ironing things out. Uh, but the C27 is new, and so like I said before, we've done eight of eh, eight of 14 PDMs on the uh, C27. Uh, so we haven't even gotten all those aircraft in yet. And we're learning new stuff. We're fine-tuning the uh, PDM process. And then on the 144 side, you know, we, I'd say we finally got into a steady state around 2017, 2018. Uh, we knew what to do for PDM. Um, you know, the fleet maintenance programs, like everything was running, running pretty good. And then boom, what do we do? Bravo upgrade. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also did a big study. Now, these were great things, uh, but they do add some complexity. But we also did uh, on the 144 side, uh, we basically un- you know, figured out uh, that we're not flying the aircraft how it was certified for. Uh, we were essentially operating heavier and, and doing more uh, training, landings, touch and goes, whatnot. And so that uh, we went back to the OEM, we went back to Airbus and said, hey, um, you know, adjust our maintenance program, adjust our service life based on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we got back was uh, uh, the service life was much lower. And so right now we're in this back and forth with the OEM trying to strategically, through science and engineering analysis, find the true service life of the 144. But it's just yeah. added a lot of uh, complexity. Because I think if you, were a, uh, if you were an 06 or above, uh, you want to know what is the service life of this aircraft? Because once you know that, 
you can start back planning. You can say, okay, it's going to end here. And this is when we need to have, you know, the next option available. Right. Now with the C27 and, and 144, we know the bounds of the service life, but we don't have the exact values yet. And it uh, makes, makes leadership decisions pretty difficult when you don't have that information. Well, yeah, from an operational standpoint too, like in the 144, at least at, at Mobile, like, I don't know if this is still the the same thing, but you can only go out and do 1.3 landings per flight or, you know, some strange average where you're trying to train new co-pilots. Granted, the sim is a, is a fantastic way to train and it's way more uh, like the fidelity is way better than in the fixed wing community. But like, how do you tackle that? Uh, you know, like you got a brand new co-pilot who wants to learn how to fly 144 and you tell him or her that, hey, you can't land this thing more than once a flight or twice a flight. You can't go do touch and goes. Yeah, that is true. It's it's tough to gain buy-in from the fleet for uh, operational restrictions like that. And so we, uh, I think it was 2018, we actually introduced uh, operational limitations and an annual landing limit uh, uh, for the 144. Mm -hmm. So prior to that, you know, from 2005, 2006, when the first 144 came into the fleet, no restrictions were on the aircraft. You could uh, fill it up full of people and fuel up to its max uh, gross weight and just go out and do whatever you want. And so that was happening. And so it, uh, it had its toll. And uh, uh, through analysis, we, uh, we now understand that was damaging and limiting to the airframe. Uh, so we had to put some limitations in place mm-hmm. in, in order to curb that. Uh, but you're right, it's been difficult to get buy-in from the fleet, you know, because a landing in the fixed wing community, that is the that's, that's the best the thing. part, right? Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the, that's the, you got to do one takeoff and one landing at least. And, and you want to be good at that in all the various conditions, high crosswind at night in VG. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we are currently limiting that. And that is, uh, that's creating some, uh, just lack of buy-in sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and I think like you're saying to curb that, I think is just letting them know the analysis and the engineering we've done to substantiate these. Right. Having and that so that's background. where we've seen some benefit. Okay. Any other fixed wing have that issue? The C one thirties or yeah, so uh, we both flew Falcons, and we by the time we flew Falcons, there were some operational limits, so a touch yeah. and go weight and a training weight on the aircraft. Um, and I mean, I went through the one forty four T course when there was no sim, so I specifically remember hot day August, full fuel takeoff to do a check ride, and our mm-hmm. you know immediate thing was to do uh, single engine go arounds and full stops, mm-hmm. and it was not good for the aircraft. I mean, to maintain the speed you're supposed to, it resulted in over torque. Yeah. Hot day, full aircraft. Um, I feel like we probably did that in the 65 community. I know we did because they used to just didn't matter the compliment way back then, right? They'd fill up to 1,800 pounds. No, nah, we, we, just just no, we never did that. <laughs> we never, we never did, did anything that. wrong. No. Um, yeah. I, you know, that's why we have those limitations there. And it's, yeah. it's for the longevity of the aircraft. You know, it's not necessarily going to break the aircraft if you do it. But um, as people start making decisions of like, okay, tell, you know, tell me when this aircraft's going to be done. You're like, yeah, sir, it's not that easy. This is a complex mm-hmm. answer. And it sounds like that that's what they're doing here is trying to really figure out like, where is that line between like, yep, um, it's absolutely safe to do it. And, you know, trying to take in some of the operational restrictions um, so off on a tangent here, do either you have a, a favorite slash hardest landing that you've ever had to do in any of the aircraft that you've flown? Uh, I have a pretty good one. When I was a new-ish AC in the Falcon, I was flying, I think it was the Lantaria Admiral around, 
and we <laughs> landed at uh, Lakefront in Cleveland. No, in uh, New Orleans. Oh, okay. And like in my flare, flock of birds across the windscreen. So I like bobbled the yoke a little bit, and yes, we landed twice. Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> Admiral was kind enough to come up and tap me on the shoulder and said, I couldn't log two landings on that one. Oh, <laughs> sick burn. Uh, pretty embarrassing. Oh, uh, stuck that with stings. me till today. Yeah. I like it. That's why you always hear about like, Oh, take the Admiral up and you're like, ah, that's a lose lose situation. Yeah, like, if you really do everything is. great, they're like, yeah, I expected that to go great. And then yeah, that happens. They're like, Oh, oh boy. Yeah, now my name is known. <laughs> what yeah. about you, sir? No, I think the, uh, the landing story I have, I, it was, um, we were in Cape Cod on, on a standard trainer in the 144. And I forgot, I think uh, Laconia rings a bell. Does that ring yeah, a bell? Yeah, New Hampshire. Yeah, there was, a, there was an airport up there, uh, very wilderness centric. And so we were, uh, we did a touch and go. And uh, as uh, the aircraft was on on the deck and, and we were, um, you know, uh, resetting our flaps and trim, and I look up, I was the, um, I was the flying pilot and the uh, co-pilot was resetting the flaps and trim and, I, and, and I'm looking down the runway and I see a deer uh, tiptoe onto the side of the runway. <laughs> I'm like, that deer's smart enough not to just run right out. Yeah. So I think we're good. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll never forget. He looks, the deer looks off the runway in the way he should have gone and then walks right to the center <laughs> of the runway. And so uh, um, uh, just in the 144, we have this uh, thing called a constant torque holding system. It's basically you hit it and it, it automatically brings the engines up to full power. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that's what you would normally do. You'd uh, uh, The pilot would raise the uh, power levers to a certain point around 70%. Uh, the co-pilot would hit this constant torque system and it would bring it up to 100%. You'd verify you're above your rotation speed and you'd rotate. Mm -hmm. uh, but I can remember looking over because he wasn't done with all that yet. And uh, the deer was right in front of us. And so I threw in some power <laughs> and I yanked back. <laughs> and I can feel the, uh, uh, the 144 is cables and pulleys, you know, like a giant Cessna and it's a control oh, yeah. system. And I could feel those, pull, those uh, cables just <laughs> stretch. Yep. And we went over the deer, uh, kind of settled back down in a ground effect a little bit until we all... No way. You know, got ourselves in a appropriate condition to fly away and then we flew <laughs> Clean away. Out the shorts real yeah. quick. And yeah. Did you let, did he, Max look behind you and like, oh yeah, the deer is okay. And it like <laughs> ran off or that deer. Oh, that's, a good, no. that's a good one. I that's haven't a, heard that story before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was asking that question. We were talking to um, some pilots from Alpat uh, a couple weeks ago and they were mentioned in this mass medevac that they had to have done off a of Dutch because there was a huge snowstorm and nobody could get in or out. And I can't remember the name of the C-130 pilot, but uh, both these 65 pilots were just like cheering this guy um, and the whole crew for landing because I don't know if you ever landed at Dutch in a C-130. So there's... Um, whatever that mountain's called. That's not Ballyhoo, is it? Or is that one no of Kodiak? Idea. Anyways, there's a huge mountain. And at the base of the mountain is where they built the runway. And the winds, that the oh. trade winds that come in, they just wrap around the mountain. So you get like a headwind and tailwind component at the same time as you're coming into this, this runway. And it's snowing sideways and it's a short runway and just came in and planted it. Medevac to like, I don't know, 20 people out of the clinic because they run out of supplies. It was, wow. it was really impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I'll show you a video of it. It's really cool. I actually have a... Uh, landing story. I think we were in flight school. You remember Jess Pomeroy? Oh yeah. 
I think me and Jess rented some Cessna and we went over to like, we went from, what was a Peter Prince? Was it that the one right in Milton? Anyways, yeah. we took off yeah. Yeah. and we went over to Sunday Callahan. We're going to go get like home, the throat roll, uh, Lambert's cafe. Mm-hmm. And we were not proficient. Didn't know what we were doing really <laughs> probably pretty dangerous, but like it was starting to get dark and we were coming in for a landing and we had too much speed floated touchdown and the runway kind of goes up. And so it looked like the runway was ending. And so we come to like a screech, locked up the tires and then like kind of got up top and was like, oh, we had another 3,000 feet of, <laughs> of runway. So like we taxi off and sure enough, that guy was probably just watching us, you know, like float, yeah. balloon, touch, come up and Slam then on screech and then just pull off. But oh man, yeah, that's my only fixed wing, I think memorable landing we do have the uh the we have a crew in the back and so they are they are very good at letting us know (laughs) if uh, they think the landing was uh not to their standards yes you know i I take silence as a compliment yeah Yeah. silence can mean a lot you know uh (laughs) they don't sit back there with like scorecards like 8.8 or you know 7.5 on that landing in their own way yeah Yeah. Yeah. in their own way they do yeah in their own words we'll say yeah uh, jumping back into the engineering world, uh, there's a question about the C27. So, you know, how, we've had that since, did you say 2014 was when the whole deal went down or we somewhere around there? We started flying them in about 2015. 2015. So we've had them for seven years now, but we're just recently got like a little mini wing with a, a FLIR ball on it as far as like a sensor package. Um, where are we in the process with getting that thing outfitted with something similar to the, the 130 or the CASA? Yeah, so I'm I am currently the the uh, 144 and C27 product line manager, but I will turn that over to Morgan because she was the <laughs> she was the uh, the expert on that stuff. Yeah, so they uh, there's an asset project office which recently changed names to the APAC. I'm gonna butcher it. Yeah, yeah. Um, acquisition aviation project, project acquisition center something Nailed like that. It. APAC. So they're in charge of the missionization component of it. But uh-huh. since I reported here in 2018, there has been an aircraft at Pax River uh, undergoing missionization okay. as the prototype. Yeah. So we now have two aircraft up in Pax River. And uh, I'm going to say two. It might be one and a half. It's on its way very soon if it's not out there yet mm-hmm. uh, in Waco, Texas. Oh, really? So there's four C-27s undergoing missionization at different phases. Uh, I'll just say it's a complicated project, not necessarily because of what's going on the aircraft, but due to the certification. So it's an Italian aircraft. It's a mission is uh, missionization has a couple different components internal to the aircraft. Uh, Navair is helping us certify mm-hmm. external to the aircraft. Leonardo is helping us certify and they go through uh, the Italian military organization, DAAA. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are some components that go through EASA, so the European FAA. Yikes. That all goes through NAVAIR, <laughs> and that all ultimately falls on the Coast Guard Airworthiness Authority. So it's just complicated. Uh, they're adding something like 35 different antennas. So the antenna coastside analysis on the outside of this aircraft um, is a lot. Yeah. Uh, not to mention the drag and uh, cutting holes in the aircraft and relocating things. So that alone is just 
complex. Uh, and then, you know, COVID got thrown in there. So we're having these engineers come over from Europe. A huge wrench got uh, thrown into that. Mm-hmm. Some yeah. contract things happened. Uh, so it, it has been delayed. To answer your question, though, uh, the first missionization aircraft should uh, start to have ground runs in the next several months. I'm going to say like four months from now. Whoa, cool. And should fly in the spring. Yeah. Um, once it flies, there's a lot of test flights that have to happen yeah. at NavAir. So they start with, um, they start to open the envelope of like your airworthiness about uh, speeds, altitudes, maneuvering. Mm-hmm. And then once that all goes well and they prove, hey, yeah, you're safe within all the envelope you want to fly, then they do all the operational testing. Do so, we do any of that testing? Like, do we send pilots up to NavAir to do that? Or is that all done by the Navy? Uh, so we have that initial test pilots are going to be an Italian uh, Leonardo pilot okay. and a C-27 Navy pilot. Uh, so a test pilot who's trained on the C-27. Okay. Um, and then following the, I'll say riskiest ones, I forget what they call them, like tier one, tier two. Mm-hmm. That's probably not the right term. Um, we start to send uh, Coast Guard pilots okay. to fly. Yeah. I mean, maybe we don't have enough pilots or the Navy isn't interested, but I always thought it'd be interesting to have a, an engineering billet at PAX to learn how to fly all our different airframes and be our test pilot, you know, or one or two. So CG9 usually funds a, uh, a rotary wing and a fixed wing on demand. Okay. So we've uh, had a rotary wing a handful of years ago. Mm-hmm. And up until about a year and a half ago, we had a Coast Guard fixed wing pilot. That actually went to the to PAX and was stationed there and went through the course and everything? Or Yep. Cool. Yep. He was a full-time test yeah. pilot. Uh, unfortunately, okay. the C-27 schedule just slipped outside of his uh retirement window okay, i got you yeah um, so we're on plan b right now so yeah. what's the I, I don't know if you know this but like the that aircraft goes through all the testing will go to sacramento as the rest of them start getting that uh upgrade or yep so that one will actually come back to the apac for a bit to do okay. the operational testing yep. and then um i think the fixed wing sighting plan is still uh unsigned at headquarters so i want to speak too much to it but right. i i think the plan is to have the missionized ones go to sacramento first sacramento. okay mm-hmm. okay uh followed by clearwater that's right okay. clearwater and then we would get maybe one to train in i know we're building a sim right now so we're finally putting a sim together yeah uh, the the final laydown is supposed to be five in uh, Sacramento, five in Clearwater, two in Mobile, and then two in Flow at PDM. Oh, I got to make up the fourteen. That's really cool. Yeah, and the sim. I think uh, I think what you're referring to is the sim. Uh, uh, was in Arlington, Texas, and mm-hmm. they're gonna, you know, in, 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 in out, less right? than a year, they're gonna pull it out. And now the uh, building is 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 currently being constructed in Mobile, and so it's a uh, final resting spot. Will be right there beside the 144 sim. Yeah, the steel's steel's going up, or they're done yeah. with the steel already on base. So yeah, yeah. Um, what do you guys see as the biggest uh, issues going forward in the fixed wing community? I mean, it can be airframe specific or general, because sometimes I'm thinking you just have so many yeah. airframes, so you probably have a lot of various problems. I was going to mention just one thing, just to go back on your yeah, previous yeah. topic. And, and by the way, nice job in steering us back towards the engineering discussion. <laughs> <laughs> because if Captain Wilson would have, would, would have, no, all we did was talk pilot stories, he'd have been a, uh, uh, we'll need, we'll kill, I'll need he'd have made y'all yeah. come he back. He would have liked that. Yeah. Well, he would have, but he'd have made y'all come back though, yeah. you yeah. know, and do a part two. That's right. Um, you know, something we get a lot though is, uh, um, so the 144, their Alpha to Bravo upgrade, right? You know that was a project upgrade. C27 missionization is a project upgrade. Uh, we get a lot of questions sometimes because um, on the differences and the options the Coast Guard has to do those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you saw today the 144, the the A to B uh, was done 
in-house. And so we used Pax River to help us design it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were the primary designer of the plan. And they did the first one. The 2307 was was our prototype um, Bravo model. And so they did it. And then rather than pay another company to do the rest of the fleet, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is what the uh, 130J does, which is what the C27J uh, is is going to do and are doing right now. We decided to do it in-house. Yeah. And there's pluses and minuses there. I think it's safe to say that the 144A to B, though a large upgrade, you all saw it, large cockpit mission system upgrade, um, it is it is smaller in scope than the C27 project, mm-hmm. which has to do major structural changes to actually add a radar antenna, to actually add a spot to mount the uh, FLIR ball. Um, but you know, the Coast Guard has that option. Like we, uh, on the 144 Bravo side, I'd say the product line is really the expert on the, if we choose to do the mod in-house, yeah. the uh, product line becomes the expert, but you have added burdens on, on schedule constraints. It's um, uh, workforce constraints because we have to plus up our workforce, which mm-hmm. isn't always the quickest thing. Right. Uh, but then if you do it on the outside, you know, typically uh, you push all those, all those hardships onto the company, but you pay more you know, it uh, normally costs a lot more. Yeah. Um, so we're actually dealing with that exact same thing on LRS side right now. So there's a block 8.1 aircraft. Uh, the fleet is split currently about a 50-50-ish. Uh, block 6, which is the legacy, and then the block 8.1 is the latest and greatest for the C-130J. We've recently, in the last year, brought our first block 8.1 integration in-house. And it is... Uh, proving challenging, mm-hmm. but we're also building that in-house experience, which ultimately is just going to pay dividends when things break in the fleet, things happen, uh, and tech services is called out. We'll know exactly. We'll be intimately familiar with those wiring diagrams and how the system works. Yeah, just so for those who are not familiar, like myself, and you know, my only listener is my mom. So, what is a block uh, six point? It's an avionics upgrade and okay. uh, enhanced uh, features in the mission computer. Okay. Yep, but so, that comes with it, not just a software update. It's a complete um, rewire. Of, all right. Of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so who, who makes that decision of like, Hey, we're going to take that project on in house. Is it, is it you and your teams? Um, is it combined with 41? How does that decision get made? I think, uh, the Coast Guard seeks for organic capability, uh, in, in the engineering airfield or, uh, engineering field. Definitely. So I, I don't know exactly how that conversation went down. I wasn't part of it, but okay. I would imagine, um, the product line looked at it, looked at the expense of going offsite and started the conversation. Uh, and ultimately we don't want to gap the fleet, right? So yeah. we are here to support the air stations and the operational commanders. So if we do think it'll gap the fleet, we really have to take a hard look at it. Um, so it, it'll be a probably stemming from the product line, but absolutely getting 41 buy-in. Yeah. Commander Lovejoy, well, you were showing us around today, and I think you were saying that the C-27s are the ones that have come back. None of them have been, like, identical. Um, and yeah. So there's, like, some wiring that goes here and some that goes there, and it, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, if it's something that you take on in-house – you can kind of get some standardization and processing in place. You're like, okay, now I know when I go to the 
aircraft in Miami, it should be the same one that's in Corpus. And and I'm assuming that that's yeah. correct. Yeah, yeah. That's just, uh, uh, it also goes along the lines of uh, complexity. Uh, uh, so that, you know, we throw around a lot of acronyms and terms. Well, here's another one. Uh, the the blue circle baseline is the is the standard configuration for the C twenty seven. That's that's where it's driving for. It stemmed from the, you know the here's another acronym: the Joint Aircraft Cargo Team. Uh, you know the Army, Coast Guard, and the Australians were the original partners there. They all decided to have one configuration. Uh, but again, the uh, C twenty seven. You know. It wasn't finalized. The uh, the uh, service life, the maintenance program, uh, the configuration just wasn't. All the eyes weren't crossed. All the uh, or T's weren't crossed. Eyes weren't dotted. You know, and so now we're figuring all that out. Uh, so right now there's about 135 different service bulletins. Um, uh, the largest being the uh, uh, installation of a search window. Uh, so you have huge ones like that, all the way down to small component um, uh, version issues with. Uh, things of that nature. Well, uh, do you, either of you ever get frustrated with uh, that aspect? Like you, you've purchased an aircraft that now you have 127 bulletins or however, however what that number was, and you have to figure out all these different things. I mean, I know you're engineers well, and that's part of the job. technically these ones are free. Right, that's yeah. right. These are free mm -hmm. aircraft. But like, you know, you wish that you would have something come off the line that a lot of these systems are already in place and there's a, you know, you've got parts uh, and a supply line and. You know, uh, I think that spoke to what I was talking about at ALC is a really cool place to be stationed because every day there's challenges and I, I think they look to us here to say, all right, how are you going to fix them? What's the solution? Mm -hmm. um, I thought I would see kind of a drastic change when I stepped over um, to the LRS side because you have Lockheed Martin as your OEM and you have the backing of the U.S. Air Force. Uh, there's challenges over there, too. Um, mm -hmm. Things are going obsolete. Avionics are just refreshing at such a rate that we can't keep up. Uh, the supply of certain components, again, you think U.S. Air Force has all of these C-130Js. Supply must be abundant. Well, there's also a big draw on the supply system mm -hmm. by the U.S. Air Force. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm seeing a lot of similar challenges, uh, not necessarily like the tail number configuration differences, but uh, global fleet wide. Like, hey, this is going to be a problem. We got to figure out how to tackle this. Uh, no one's going to come to our rescue and certainly not at a price tag that we could probably afford. So okay. let's come up with the in-house solution. Yeah, I think to add on to that, and so you said frustration. I think I think learning what makes foreign OEMs what they care about and how to get action from them mm -hmm. is something we're dealing with now. And I think uh, you, you say like in the future, you know, maybe five, ten years. I think we might uh, we might modify how we deal with the foreign OEMs. I think you saw uh, some examples on the SRR side. Uh, they did a memorandum a memorandum of understanding with uh, Airbus, essentially saying that, hey, uh, you know, the Coast Guard's gonna operate these aircraft for a long time, you gotta be there to support us. And boom, they signed it, you know, the leadership signed it, and and they have that that document to go back to. That is one method. Mm -hmm. um, because a, a lot of times what we get is, is, you know, Leonardo and Airbus, they're these huge billion dollar companies. The uh, from a strictly profit standpoint or like a you know, margin of their business, yeah. uh, we aren't very big. Mm -hmm. On American companies, you always have the fact that we're the U.S. Coast Guard and, and uh, people understand that. Yeah. And 
and, and you can approach them from that angle mm-hmm. to say, hey, really help us, really work with us on this one. We need your help here. Uh, but a lot of times when, you know, we're, uh, we're not the Italian Coast Guard, we're not the Spanish Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that tack doesn't work with them. And figuring out how to get some movement from them, I think is something we do need to uh, get a little better at. And, and sometimes we do get frustrated with that. Yeah. And the, there are joint user groups on the 130 side too. There's a, a joint user group made up of uh, many different allied nations. And I think the Air Force kind of leads it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not just a tactic on even the smaller airframes. I mean, driving uh, the OEM to make certain decisions or uh, procure certain things, plus up their supply system, certain cells um, is the you know larger mass of people you have going for that. I think the more effective you'll be. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, are you guys seeing part shortages in fixed wing side? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think, uh, every, every aircraft has its challenges. Uh, grass isn't always greener. When you look over the fence, you're like, actually today I will take my problems over your problems. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one thirty side, I think our two biggest uh, alligators to the boat today are the radar parts. So we're having some issues with that in terms of the repair turnover. I mean, it can take upwards of 180 or even 360 days to get uh, some of these radar parts. So unfortunately, you'll frequently see some PMC status for some C-130Js. You know, everyone thinks our newest fixed-wing asset out there. Mm-hmm. Well, fixed-wing assets are very good if they have their sensors operating. Mm-hmm. Um, so to not have that is it's a really big mission degrader for the, for the operational commanders. Um, and our, our second biggest thing is our propellers. Uh, there's been some issues at the OEM. It's actually a foreign OEM over in England. They've had, uh, I think their plant burnt down a few years ago, and most recently they're on strike. So mm. again, we think, hey, how can propellers be an issue for C-130Js that the Air Force flies so many of them? Well, if they have to cannibalize parts, they fly so many of them. We only have so many and every mm-hmm. single tail number is that important to the air station mm-hmm. that we can't be playing uh, part swapping. So, yeah. Is this something you guys look at here at ALC as far as like, you know, availability, dispatch rates in the fleet? Is that something you guys care about? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd say uh, uh, ALC is very metric driven. And uh, uh, so the ideal, uh, the ideal. A way to do things is if you have a problem, you uh, understand the uh, metric or the number that is driving that problem, and then you you shoot to change it based on that uh, number, and that's how you know if you've made a uh, made an effective change. Um, so I say we do that a lot. Yeah, and because we're not uh, you know involved in the day to day at an air station, we can take a little bit more of a global look and start to see trends. Right. Um, and say, hey, this has been a problem at all three air stations, not just from a supply standpoint, but from a reliability. So we get quarterly reliability data from a cell here at ALC, mm-hmm. and we'll have a watch list, and it'll show you, hey, these are your top 10 parts that are failing and or if they've made a major jump where you've like, hey, we just replaced True Story about eight rudder actuators on the C-27 recently in like the span of three months. Something's happening here with us. Right, yeah. Um, So we we can come up with either internal fixes. I think you guys have had some... uh, success on a crew door uh, Mm -hmm. fatigue issue that you developed in-house and you just saw that as a trend of, hey, all these air stations are having a similar problem. 
where you might not get yeah. that just being the EO at a certain airstrip. Was that the the Casa door just yeah, kept that's lowering a, it and it was breaking? Or? Yeah, that, that is a perfect example. I'm glad you brought that up. So you know, it's, it's probably worth discussing that with, with our, our relationship with the OEM. Is is uh, So the main cabin door uh, where the upper gas strut mm-hmm. uh, rod attaches to the fuselage, just it uh, uh, from, you know, under design fatigue considerations, it it started tearing out. Uh, so that clevis really tore out of a major structural frame that uh, gave the fuselage its its Yikes. its uh, tubular shape. Um, so what we did is is we uh, eliminated use of the main cabin door except for emergency use only, mm-hmm. and then we went out and um, we had a third party engineering firm uh, design an attachment and. Uh, we're installing that currently at ALC. We're considering doing that on a field team. I think we actually have a team heading out to Corpus. They're going to do one of our, uh, I think we got around a quarter of the fleet left. Uh, but we essentially said, okay, you got to use the ramp or the forward crew door yeah. um, in order to enter and exit the, uh, exit the aircraft, except for an emergency situation. Uh, but that does show how, you know, the normal flow of of how we do things if we have a problem. And so we we prefer to use the OEM uh, to use the OEM or get something from uh, industry to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if those avenues fail, we do have manufacturing capability here and design capability here at ALC. We can do that, uh, but it's normally our last option uh, because you know, you know, timing and uh, cost constraints are normally a little higher if we do it ourselves. So. Yeah. Um, I know, I but was, that's what we did. I know I was wowed by the uh, like CNC machines and the 3D printers and all the sorts of enormous uh, gear that you guys have here, and you can produce anything you want almost. Yeah, in that sense. Yeah, but. we have we have a great capability here. I think we just lean or try to go to the OEMs. I mean, they have all of the flight loads data for the aircraft. We're not we don't have the intellectual property. We didn't buy that. Yeah. So we're using best estimations, you know, good engineering guesses, but we didn't design these aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, if it was a problem on aircraft, it's probably going to be a problem for the worldwide fleet. We do want to go back to the OEM and say, Hey, this is an issue. We're giving you, you know, ample heads up, uh, please fix it. Yep. It'll come at a cost, um, but to lean on their uh, engineering resources. That's smart. But sometimes they just... They don't, um, it's not a big enough issue for them. It's not high enough in their queue. What, uh, what gets the two of you excited about fixed wing aviation in the future? Like what's, what are we looking at in the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I think for me, um, I'd really like to just reduce the complexity of the MRS program and uh, fixed wing in general. Like you, uh, uh, just, uh, uh, Side note, talking the uh, Cal Fire issue with the C-130, mm-hmm. try explaining that to someone on the street. Okay, you gotta, you gotta. <laughs> Their fire aircraft is that a Coast Guard mission? Well, nope, nope. But but you all maintain them and overhaul them and serve as the technical. You know, like try having that conversation. But you you send QAs to the Air Force You're facility, a federal agency, and yeah, a no. state agency. I mean, yeah. it's just how did this handshake happen? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we have a lot of complexity, and and uh, uh, from my standpoint, what actually gets me excited is 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 I think we have passed forward right now. Uh, speaking one, you know, 144 and C27, I think the past, we're not there yet. Uh, but the way to get there, the way to reduce the complexity and clearly establish the maintenance and, and, uh, service life programs for these aircraft, uh, give leadership the ability to make the long-term decisions. And I think we'll be, uh, I think we'll be on a better path. 
Yeah. And on the long range side, we're on the cusp of uh, going to an all 130J fleet. Mm-hmm. Um, 130H, I think I've never flown it personally. I know that it has very loyal pilots and aircrew and maintainers. <laughs> Uh, I think it's been such an asset to the service, but mm-hmm. it is exciting to streamline that and put all of our efforts and focus into one airframe um, that's going to serve, you know, for many decades to come. Yeah. Uh, we just, like I was telling you earlier today, um, barbers just turned to 130Js mm-hmm. um, and we'll start to see that fleet expand as we fully send down the uh, H model fleet. So, yeah. I mean, transitions are hard. We've been doing the echo transition, the 65, um, ever since I got to the division, I'm, both Kenny and I are going on our fourth year. And even from an operation side, you know, we are running, I think seven concurrent syllabi right now in yeah. two different uh, types of the airframe. And you've got a split wardroom, you know, everybody's going in each direction and you, it, it's nice to have that one single thing that everybody's focused on, trained in, you know, that streamlined process. And which makes me curious, like, is that a future goal? Like why, why not just the 130J? Like why not that everywhere or the CASA or what, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know what the answer would be, but. I mean, I, I, this is just opinion, but I think that's what, uh, I think maybe, and you know, I'll just say my opinion, but I think maybe that's, uh, that's what you're seeing. You know, the, the, the it's, it's been the, you know, the sundown of the 65 program. I think right now, if you'd say, Hey, leadership, you all want one or two helicopters. I think it does simplify our world. If we have one fixed wing and one helicopter, Oh my goodness. you can't argue with that. No. And uh, from, from a leadership structure that has to deal with all these little nuances from all these product lines, it's tough to make a decision when you got to know so much in order to have a grasp of the situation. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the counter argument to that is uh, if you would preference that if money were no object. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> um, the bigger check. the aircraft, the more complex, just the more expensive they get. Okay. Uh, any box that you fault out and can't fix on the aircraft, I mean, you're talking six figures now, you're removing that to just put a new six figure box on the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, sure, you bring it back. You're not buying a new one. You're getting it repaired. But that all comes at a cost. So yeah. um, it, it would be nice to streamline resources. I think um, having the backgrounds, very similar backgrounds, if we could have combined our brain power on some of these issues, I think we would have gotten further faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I felt very you know, split because we're just each heads down doing our own thing. Uh, so that would be nice. I think we'd have much more standard crews, more standard missions, everything that's good about standard configuration and Mm -hmm. uh, training that we're all used to. Yeah. Favorite fixed wing aircraft? Ready to go. Oh, the Falcon. Falcon. That was easy. I think every pilot who's ever flown a Falcon always says the Falcon. (laughs) Uh, You know what's funny? Funny story is every year we have an engineering officers conference, and uh, every year I'm sitting there, and I'm I'm wondering when the first year when no one mentions the Falcon and it hasn't, <laughs> hasn't happened, happened yet. <laughs> Every yeah. year there's someone that says, "Well, back on the Falcon," or some maybe I'll, they preface it like that. I might start my slideshow off with a picture of the Falcon this year. Thanks for the <laughs> idea. Just, just get it. What? Yeah. Uh, what I'm going to do is is if I'm there and no one mentions the Falcon, I'll just stand up at the very end and just, say, "I got I got one more comment," <laughs> and I'll just say Falcon. Falcon sit back down. Uh, what do you guys you guys have a favorite aviation? story, whether it was a good star case or something memorable that happened in your career? I had a pretty good one in the Falcon, naturally. Obviously. Um, first tour, I it may have been my first duty night. Uh, if not, I'm going to embellish the story and say it was definitely my first duty night as mm-hmm. an AC. 
Uh, Doug Watson, if you ever interview him, he's a very uh, famous Coast Guard aviator, was mm-hmm. my co-pilot. So, I mean, softball <laughs> co-pilot, right? He has a former 60 ACIP, FE, all the, all the goods. Uh, but yeah, we were middle of the night doing a medevac out of Nantucket and basically a nor'easter flew through and that tower closes. So their uh, approach that they had was on the wrong runway. Yep. So we were faced with basically going due regard under the clouds to get to the airport or doing a circling approach at night with crosswind on a short field in Nantucket. We went due regard. I think that was the right yeah. call. Picked up the patient, uh, went to Boston Logan. We did something called a standard instrument approach in that aircraft. So one pilot flies, um, right seat pilot flies, left seat pilot just looks for the runway. Mm-hmm. Once they have the runway environment in sight, they take controls and land the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the AC, I was the landing uh, pilot. We broke out, or he was flying on the autopilot. Of course, that had a glitch like right above men's. So he you know, starts <laughs> manually taking over. I catch the runway uh, lights, land the aircraft, and they close the aircraft before we've even, or the airport before we've even taxied off because there's so much snow. Whoa, yeah. really? So that was that was pretty good. Like first yeah. SAR case, uh, Nantucket Medevac. And I think I uh, probably got to the hotel around like 3.30 in the morning or something. And obviously just stayed up there, but uh, yeah. Holy cow. Nice. That's first. A- First duty too. I know, oh, man. That's a good one. <laughs> We're gonna say it was the first duty. Yeah, it's never definitely let, one of the first three. Never <laughs> let facts get in the way of a, of yeah, a good story. Exactly. So. Well, yeah. I like that you mentioned hotel too because oh, yeah. uh, we also stereotype fixed wing pilots. You obviously know how to travel the best. Tdy. Like it was you, a Hilton. Yeah, you always you always stay in the oh, best yeah, hotel. Absolutely. Hey, the best resort in El Salvador or with, like wherever the heck you're going, right? Yeah. The new thing is airport lounges. Airport yeah, lounges. If, uh, if you're curious about those, just ask a fixed wing pilot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to know the best one. Mm-hmm. What about mm-hmm. what about you, sir? I know I think the best one, and I'll mention my uh, you know good buddy uh, Adam Cernovich. It, w- it was uh, he was the former SRR product line manager left this year, um, but we had a great great case. Also Falcons Miami. Uh, there was a cruise ship medevac, and the sixty five went out, picked up the patient, and they uh, couldn't make it back all the way to uh, Miami International. They had to, they had to stop in in Key West for fuel. That was going to delay the uh, time to care. And so I think it was uh, it was either an air crew, it was either the uh, flight mech or the rescue swimmer on the 65 had this idea that said, hey, why don't the Falcon just land in, in uh, Key West International, mm-hmm. uh, transfer the patient over, and, and uh, we'll take them the rest of the way to uh, Miami International. And uh, we did that, and it worked great. And I, I, I think it just showed the... Uh, how when there's a good idea needed, it yeah. could come from anybody. Yeah. And and I think we really value the the uh, CRM skills of our crew mm-hmm. on on determining the best way to um, attack a mission. Yeah, having um, having y'all fly overhead for us when we go way offshore is so comforting and so important. I think for helicopter pilots. Um, especially when you get on scene and you guys have already done the vessel brief and you've got the uh, boat on the right course and they know exactly what's going to happen. Cause you know, Kenny and I get out there and we've got five minutes until, mm-hmm. you know, bingo and we have to turn around. So it has to be expedited. But have you had a lot of overflights, uh, like fixed wing support? In any I've of had a few. I think yeah. I've had a, a couple yeah. in San Fran. I mean, and then like you go to Alaska and, and it's necessary, like no matter where you go, it's going to take a Herculean effort, no pun intended, no pun to intended. get yeah. to get out right and, and rescue people off the yeah. pollution chain. And even just out at Hitron, it wasn't always Coast Guard aircraft, but 
Um, yeah. Someone knows that you're out there because yeah. it's a big, it's a big ocean when you're out there. And we, we like uh, fixed wing pilots, like crews like doing that mission. I mean, we do feel like we're of value and we can fly ahead, find your wins for you. And yeah. uh, I've, I've done a, at least a couple handfuls of those and they're, they're always exciting missions, I think mm-hmm. for us too. Yeah. Hurricane support's another big one for me too, because um, inevitably the comms are down or garbage, and you can't get a hold of sector, and the tasking is not really square. And you, there's a casa flying overhead, and you just relay everything through the casa, and they relay everything back to sector via other means, and like it gets a lot more, uh, it, it gets easier. It's a, you know a lot less stressful uh, in terms of finding people and, and executing like the, the ground mission. So. Yeah. Uh, before we close up, last parting shots, anything, um, you know, things that you guys are struggling with or, or working on letting people know like, Hey, yeah, this, we know this is an issue, but, uh, yeah. Any last? Yeah. I'll just say, uh, um, I had like only, only 10 other things I wanted to cover, but (laughs) no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, this has been great. But, uh, just with, uh, uh, I think, I think ALC, even for an engineer that's out in the fleet that hasn't been here, uh, you, you know, during our engineering syllabus, we get a two-week little uh, FAM, and and actually, I think we're here for a total of three weeks in our FAM. But even there, you just don't get the full sense of what ALC does. Mm-hmm. And so, anyone that wants to come visit, I think it, it would be a great uh, great opportunity. And if ever there's a there's something you don't understand. Uh, why ALC's doing it or why it's happening this way, it's probably just, it's it's probably because you're missing something on on the big picture. Mm-hmm. And I'll just do one example. Um, before I got here, uh, before I got to ALC, I, I'd say, uh, you, you know, the, the common thought uh, at the fleet is that every part, every repairable part is overhauled at ALC. And uh, that's simply not the case. Like actually most stuff is sent out and overhauled, but ALC serves as the focal point. And, uh, and even something like that, you know, like we might have a hydraulic pump that gets, uh, you know, shipped off to some Spanish vendor for the 144 to get overhauled and, and uh, we get it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just to, you know, the logistics associated with that, uh, it's not simply coming to ALC, we, uh, we do it here and we send it back to you. Like there are, there is... There are tons of vendors, uh, especially with uh, you know C27 and 144. Most of those are overseas, mm-hmm. and so that adds complexity with shipping and and uh, turnaround times. Um, but uh, ALC is a unique place. If you like to travel, and if you like drinking nine small cups of little coffee when you, you know, like the Spanish <laughs> and the Italians do, you, you know, uh, uh, come join MRS because yeah. that's where you're. You're uh, there's a lot of traveling and. Uh, all you're doing is searching for McDonald's in a large cup of coffee. <laughs> that's all I can remember being there. Can I just get an American-sized cup of coffee? Oh, that's funny. great. That's uh, awesome. No, but I, I just uh, Sam and I, we, we had not been here, and I'm already super impressed. Um, just like the level of things that you guys are working on, and it's not as simple as it seems when you're, you know, it's easy to be sitting on duty being like, why, why can't ALC figure this out? Like, it should, mm-hmm. like, no, there's a lot going on, and I really respect the amount of, uh, decision making and thought and the processes that you guys do here at ALC. So I'm already impressed and we're six hours in. So, yeah. yeah. So that, that was actually me, my uh, parting shot. Kenny yeah. was uh, when the, when there's an issue in the field, we do likely know about it. It's always okay to check, um, mm-hmm. but things aren't as simple to fix as it seems. Um, so the 
Airworthiness Authority is our product line EOs here, uh, but they have uh, a litany of things that they have to make sure are okay because once they make a decision, it is likely to stay on that aircraft forever time because mm-hmm. there's going to be new problems that arise. The next EO is going to be fighting with that. They don't have time to go check all of the other EOs work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really want to make that the, you know, make sure those decisions are correct. That includes uh, changing part numbers on an aircraft, changing material types, adding things externally or internally to the aircraft. Um, it's just not as simple or as easy as it might seem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really falls on the O4 product line EO um, who, you know, may or may not have even flown that aircraft before. And although most of them go to a grad school, it certainly uh, I didn't take a single class on how to certify an aircraft to be airworthy, mm-hmm. actually. So um, ask ask questions, liaison. Um, all projects kind of go through requirements basis now through headquarters before we even get tagged with them. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just I, I gained an appreciation for how complicated uh, everything is. Uh, yeah. In term, you know, we're not fixing cars and seeing if they can go 15 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour. We're mm-hmm. flying aircraft here uh, out into the dark and stormy. So, I mean, it's a good thing that it's not easy. There's, there's so much complexity with the aircraft and, and especially with the, you know, fixed wing too, that it takes a lot of time and you don't want it to take a very short amount of time because does that mean that, you know, steps were missed or we're not actually looking at uh, in depth at that aircraft. So um, it's good to get that understanding for sure. It's like the, it's like the, Goldilocks hammer. You know, if someone's down there with a sledgehammer, we go, whoa, <laughs> yeah, like, hey, right, let's reevaluate. <laughs> you know, but if someone's down there with a little pick, not really getting anything done, well, that's not good either. And right. so you really got to find that compromise. Yeah. yeah. But ALC is a really cool place to work and fly. So if you are looking for a, a sort of a different uh, billet after a couple operational tours, I mean, this this is a cool place. Yeah, we, we like to end uh, all of our shows with uh, any kind of like piece of aviation advice that you have gotten. Um, from a mentor, leader, or uh, in the past that's helped you or something you'd like to pass on to, you know, a, a young co-pilot or maybe a young engineer that's that's moving up yeah. through the, the ranks? I thought the, you know, one uh, that was given to me that I thought is uh, real good is uh, uh, for the young engineer. Like you're the platform EO at your first unit. I always thought the uh, spend a quarter time on the hangar deck and then after your quarter time is done, get off and get back to your office. And so I always thought that was neat. Like you can't be the EO hovering over them, uh, but you got to make yourself known and, and be visible out there. I like that. Awesome. My dad's a career uh, commercial pilot. So when I was going through flight school, I was like, dad, you, you know, tens of thousands of hours, you surely have some advice for me. And he said, yeah, keep the blue side up. And I said, so simple. (laughs) But I said, dad, I'm in the coast guard. I fly over the water. He goes, I got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Well, you got any other questions, Kenny? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Thank you both so much for your time and uh, for showing us around today. This is awesome. That was great. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for coming, guys. 